Thank you, Mike. Thank you, choir. You know, let me ask you a question real quick before we, uh, before we get started. If you could only have one type of food for the rest of your life, and only one, for the whole rest of your days, the next 60, 80 years you may live, regardless of how old that will make you, if you live for all those days and you can only have one food for the rest of your life, think for a second, what would that food be? Fried chicken. All right, there's one, the Baptist bird, I guess you could call fried chicken, right? Yeah, and uh, probably there are a lot of the same answers. For some of you, like Bobby, you'd say fried chicken. Others, you'd choose steak, right? Uh, Others would choose seafood, shrimp, fried shrimp, or something along those lines. I asked our oldest, Hannah, she's seven today, uh, when we got here. uh, I said, Hannah, if you could have only one food for the rest of your life, what would that food be? And she said, crab legs. And I have no idea because we don't go eat crab legs very often, if ever. <laughs> Maybe that's why she said crab legs, because you know, she never gets it. Uh, Maybe that's what she said. You know, for me, I think it would probably have to be Krispy Kremes. Uh, I think for sure it would have to be Krispy Kremes because those are life-sustaining when you think about it. You know, food, food is a big part, really, isn't it, of our lives. When you think about life every day, I mean, food obviously is a part of our daily routine. We have to have it the way God has, has, has wired us together. We have to have food to live. But when you think of it, food is a big part of our relationships as well. Uh, you know, many of the significant moments in our lives, to some degree, have something to do with food. You think about a married couple, for example. You want to have a nice date, typically you're going to go out to dinner. If you want to make a business deal with someone and you have some work to talk about, what do you have? You have a business lunch or a working lunch. So many things revolve around food in our culture, not just here in the States, but even elsewhere in the world as well. So much revolves around food. Uh, you think about having friends over, for example. You're not just going to have them over and sit around and do nothing, right? You're probably going to have them over for dessert or for coffee or for some lunch or some dinner you're going to serve. And so food is a part of our relationships. Well, when you look in Scripture, even in Bible days, here's what's interesting. A lot of the significant moments that we read of in Scripture, a lot of the moments that even impact our lives today had something to do within the context of food. And when you think of a meal, a meal has much to do with relationship. And when we come to a day like this where we celebrate the Lord's Supper, obviously there are two elements involved, the the bread and the juice or or the cup. And whenever you look at those two, they're extremely significant for us. I'm going to explain some of that in just a bit before before we're able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But even the meaning behind the Lord's Supper can even be explained in the context of meals as well. And you think, Brooks, what are you talking about? Well, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find what I would say is the first recorded meal in Scripture. (laughs) It's just three chapters in. I mean, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, right? Chapter 1, obviously, is the first chapter of the book of Genesis. So three chapters in, and we're already seeing a meal. It is a meal that is of such great significance, however, that you, right where you sit this morning, are impacted as a result of that first meal that took place in Genesis chapter 3. Well, there are two key players from a human perspective. That's Adam and Eve. And whenever they're living out their days there in the Garden of Eden, you have to remember they're living in a place of perfection. I mean, there was no sin there. There was nothing imperfect. Everything was, was exactly as God intended in the Garden of Eden when we come to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. And so Adam and Eve are living there. They're in the Garden of Eden. They've been given a direct command from God not to eat of one specific tree in the center of that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
you say, why were they given that command not to eat of that specific tree? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why God told them not to eat of that one specific tree. It does sound a little bit odd that God would create them, put them in a place of perfection, and then say, hey, that tree right there, don't eat of it, or you're going to surely die. But that's what God did. God can do that. He sets the rules. He's God. He's without beginning, without ear. There's no peer, no equal amongst him. And so he can call the shots the way he desires, and that's what he told them. You live in this Garden of Eden, you've got perfect fellowship with me, but this tree right here, do not eat of this tree. And it was in the center of the garden. For me personally, I believe, the Bible doesn't say it, so you can disagree if you want, but the Bible, my personal perspective is, is that God put that tree there with that fence around it, so to speak, as a reminder to them. It, it was a constant visual reminder of their dependence upon God. That when they saw that tree, and when they were reminded of God's perfect command not to eat of it or they would die, they were reminded that there was a God and that they were not Him. That they were the created, God is the creator. They were, in, they were dependent, God is independent. And so every time Adam and Eve would come waltzing through that part of the garden, every time they would see that tree in the middle of the garden, they would be reminded clearly that we are not the ones that call the shots Our creator is the one in control, and he has reminded us of that by this perfect command he has given us. Well, temptation would come in Genesis 3. And so read with me in verse 6 of this meal that they would take of that would impact you right where you sit this morning. It says in Genesis 3, verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. You know, poor Eve gets a bad rap because everybody's mad at Eve, right? (laughs) And when you're a little kid and you're starting to put things together and you think, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go find that lady and I'm going to have some things to say to her because she kind of messed everything up. I get spankings because of her. But the Bible says right there, verse, uh, verse 6, that her husband was with her. And we overlooked that. Uh, and the Bible doesn't say how close, but I think it's pretty clear to understand that he could have easily said no. And he laid down his role as protector and as provider there. And Adam and Eve, as an act of their will, chose to sin. Verse 7 helps us to begin to see some of the effects. It says, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife. Man, just the, the mind-blowing nature of this next statement. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, we lose sight of how... How mind-boggling that is that God had breathed life into, the, in, 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 into, their, in, into, their, into their lives. He had created them. He created Adam from the dust of the earth, Eve from his side, and breathed life into them. They were, uh, they were completely dependent upon him. He had given them everything. They had dominion over the earth, and he had surrounded them with every perfect blessing that they, could, that they, that they needed in their lives. Life was good. They walked unbroken fellowship with God. In a way that we don't, because there was no sin that kept them. And yet, with the moment they sin, they begin hiding from God. We've been doing it ever since, haven't we? And the first two negative emotions that we find in Scripture come on the heels of sin. Fear and shame. Both of them caused them to hide from the God that was their life. And it all came down to a meal. Well, you move forward in the Scriptures and you get to Exodus chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 12, what that whole chapter just about uh, lays out for us and explains to us is something called the Passover. 
We see after Adam and Eve, God would build up a nation. It would be uh, uh, nations of people, actually. But there would be one nation from all the nations of the earth, the people of, uh, of, uh, of Israel that God would call to himself. They were the chosen people. They would, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, be living in bondage in the land of Egypt. God would desire to set his people free, the people of Israel. You remember the movie, right? The Ten Commandments. You remember Charlton Heston? Let my people go, right? Moses was God's vehicle that he would use to set his people free. Ten plagues he would warn the people of Egypt about, and yet all ten of those uh, would choose to fall, ultimately fall on deaf ears. Well, the tenth plague would be the biggest, and it would be the toughest. Because in that tenth plague, God would say, I will take the firstborn from among you, whether it be in your flocks in the field or whether it be of your children in your rooms. I will take the first from among you. And it was the plague on the firstborn. Well, God would give his people, the Israelites, advance notice. And he would say, if you'll take the blood of of an unblemished lamb, and if you'll uh, uh, shed the blood of that lamb, and if you will uh, uh, place the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of your houses, when the angel of death passes over, Passover, then I will spare your child. And that's exactly what happened. Well, there would be a whole meal that would revolve around that called the Passover meal. Exodus chapter 12 begins to unpack that for us. And in the context of a Passover meal, the people of Israel would be reminded that they serve a God who is in the rescuing business. (laughs) Well, you move on to the New Testament, 1,400 years after Moses, and you get to Jesus and his disciples. Look with me in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Jesus, when he walked this earth, was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Well, Jesus, born as a Jew, would call to himself disciples that were also of a Jewish heritage. Being good Jews, they would worship God from a Jewish perspective. And in Matthew, chapter 26, we get a sense of that. And so pick up with me in Matthew, chapter 26. Pick up with me in verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. This is Jesus and his disciples, 1,400 years after that first Passover. And it says in verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? See, they're still celebrating that, that, that feast that reminded them that God is a God who delivers and saves and rescues. Verse 18, And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Jump down to verse 26. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Now see, this is a new twist. This was not part of that original Passover meal. Jesus is doing something. He's instituting something here brand new. Verse 27, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so he, surrounded by his disciples, on the verge of going to the cross, Jesus puts a twist to the Passover. And he attaches its significance to himself. And in the same way the blood of a lamb was shed for a nation, his blood would be shed for the world. What does it say in the book of John, chapter 1? As Jesus is passing by and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. 
We don't know what kind of animal it was that God killed in order to clothe Adam and Eve in the garden. Maybe it was a lamb. If so, it was a lamb for a man and woman. When you get to the book of Exodus and you see the Passover, it was a lamb spare or, or sacrificed for a family. You get further into the Old Testament and you see a day of atonement where a priest would offer a sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. It would be a lamb for a nation, but Jesus would be a lamb for the world. As the book of Acts chronicles for us, that message of the gospel would explode. People would be coming to Christ everywhere the gospel went. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you can turn there with me if you'd like. We find that the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to the early church, in this case the church in Corinth, as to how to celebrate this thing called the Lord's Supper. It was a Lord's Supper where the bread would represent the body of Christ, where the blood would, re- or where, where, the, uh, where the, the cup or the juice would represent the blood of Christ. And as the early church was celebrating this called the Lord's Supper, there would be problems early, early on. Look at what it says in chapter 11 in the book of 1 Corinthians Look down to verse 20. Paul gives instructions to this church that had lost their way in regards to the understanding of the Lord's Supper. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. You see, there were problems in the early church. The early church had become selfish. And they had seen this meal called the Lord's Supper. And it wasn't just the taking of the bread and the juice. It was also an actual meal that took place beforehand. And they had turned this into something to serve themselves. There were those that were coming and they were just gorging themselves on food and on drink. And they were to to the negligence of those who had nothing. And Paul is chastising them here, and he is telling them, you have missed the whole entire uh, focus of this Lord's Supper, that Jesus, in his humility, came and he gave his life as a sacrifice for you. And in the very recognition of his sacrifice, you've turned it into something to serve yourselves. And he begins to explain what the Lord's Supper is. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. See, he's referencing back to Matthew 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, the Lord's Supper was a look back to what Christ had done. It was a look back to the sacrifice on the cross. It was also a look forward to the fact that he was going to come back one day, and we're still awaiting his his return. But it was a look forward to that. But it was also a look on the inside. And whenever the early church would celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is very interesting. This was a a, a celebration. This was a meal geared around fellowship. In fact, many theologians say that whenever a person was in in deep, unrepentant sin, and they were a believer, they were a follower of Christ, where they had become involved in sin to the point to where they were bringing reproach on the name of Christ, where they were, where they were um, maligning the very work and the advancement of the gospel, the church would have to deal with that. Matthew chapter 18, 
uh, uh, gives us a model of how the church would deal with that. And what they would ultimately do is they would approach that, that person who was in sin. And they would approach them according to the formula set out in Matthew chapter 18. And ultimately, if the person would still be unrepentant, they would take that, that, that person in their sin before the church. And if the person was still unrepentant and still in sin that brought uh, 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 maligning to the name of Christ, to the, to the gospel itself, they would ultimately discipline that believer. And they would distance themselves from him for the sake of hopefully bringing them to the point of repentance. It was said that in the Lord's Supper was typically the context where that was done. It was a fellowship issue. And so the Lord's Supper was a time for believers to take inventory of their lives, for Christians to see, is there any sin in my life that I've allowed entrance, that I have allowed to take root, that I have not repented of? And the Lord's Supper was a checkpoint every time it was celebrated for believers to take seriously their walk with God. Where factions existed, where there was bitterness and anger, uh, unforgiveness, how many times at the Lord's Supper would those things perhaps have been resolved many many times where a person had wandered from god and they had begun to live life on their own terms to the exclusion of god in their lives how many times would the decision be made lord today i turn from this sin and i confess it to you and i accept your forgiveness help me to walk in a way that honors you how many times do you think that happened in the first century church at the table of the lord's supper many 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 times because paul would write listen as i read here in verse 27 He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He must examine himself, he says. And so what are some of the things that we need to take to heart this morning before we celebrate this, the Lord's Supper? Number one, this is a time for Christians I didn't set the rules. God, uh, this church doesn't set the rules. Scripture is very clear that the Lord's Supper was something that was enjoyed, celebrated by, by Christians exclusively. It was not something done out in the marketplace. It was not something done in the pagan culture in which they lived. This was a celebration for those who were believers because of what it represented, the body of Christ that was given and the blood of Christ that was shed. And if you're here this morning and you're at a place where you're just beginning to really uh, examine the claims of Christ, maybe you bought yourself a new Bible and you've begun reading it or you're, you're listening to preaching on TV or on the radio, you've started coming to church, you're just beginning to think, you know, what is involved in all this Christian stuff? This is something that maybe I need in my life. And you're examining that. Man, that, I cannot applaud that enough. That is tremendous that you are examining the claims of Christ. Seriously, thoroughly looking at the role that God wants to play in your life. I can, I can say to do that with a sense of urgency because much is at stake. But I would commend you for your desire to know what the truth is. And in God's word, you'll find that truth. But let me say, if you're not yet at that point where you've surrendered your life to Christ, just let these plates pass out of reverence for the sacrifice of Christ because this is a time for believers, not better. It's just a time that believers celebrate because of what it involves regarding our Savior. The Bible says to the believer that we're to take it with a sense of... uh, introspection we examine our lives and i want to encourage you this morning as we prepare to take this the lord's supper that you that you take inventory of your life that you even pray lord show me areas of my life that i have that i have begun to where i've involved where i've become involved in sin show me areas of my life where i'm in rebellion to you show me areas of my life where i'm not walking in the way that you would have me to 
And if he, if he reveals that to you in your heart, in the quietness of your heart this morning, confess it to him. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful. <laughs> and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us. You see, this is a time geared to fellowship. And where the Christian has wandered, what better time than today to confess it and to come home. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, thankfully Scripture gives us the parameters that it's a time for believers. It's a time for believers to take seriously. But we do that tempered with hope. Because the Bible says in verse 26 that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We know that God is for, not against those who belong to Him. That He fights for the one who belongs to Him. And as we live a life that honors Him, He will honor us as well. And so at this time, I'd like to ask the deacons that are helping us to serve the Lord.